Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look, and I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, how often have you heard, if we want to understand the state of race in America, we need to know our past particularly the painful parts. Local scholars will reflect on Atlanta's 1906 race massacre. This was days of violence fueled by biased reporting from city newspapers, intentionally stoking fears about black men assaulting white women. An exact account of those an exact count of those killed really hasn't been documented, but we'll talk all about that. Also, it's just one year in for rebuilding the Atlanta dream on and off the court. So I'll speak with head coach Tanisha Wright when she joins me. That's coming up. But first this, as it relates to Atlanta's 1906 race massacre, Georgia Congresswoman Nakima Williams and U.S. Senator John Ossoff have introduced companion resolutions in Congress honoring the victims of the 1906 Atlanta race massacre. Now, yesterday marked 116 years since white mobs stormed the city's black neighborhoods, attacking people and destroying property. The rampage was sparked by, again, intentional inaccurate reporting about black men assaulting white women and inflammatory language used by racist politicians. The tragedy was not officially recognized by the city of Atlanta until 2006. And again, coming up in just a moment, we'll talk all about this with local scholars. In other news, the rollout of $350 payments to Georgians receiving government assistance isn't going so smoothly. There are problems, as we hear from WABE's Jim Burrs. Since going live on Tuesday, thousands of recipients have complained they're unable to access the funds that are supposed to work like virtual debit cards. Some say they've had to leave the grocery store without food because the merchant wouldn't accept the electronic payment at checkout. Others say they were unable to pay rent because the funds can't be converted into cash or a money order. Officials say declined transactions have mostly been for attempts to buy prohibited items, like tobacco. Democrats are fuming that Governor Kemp is both handing out money and bashing the Biden administration for inflation and excessive spending. Kemp has said he's trying to help people cope with inflation. Economists, however, say dumping cash into the economy only drives up prices. Jim Burris, WABE News. And in other news, the Forest Park Fire Department is launching a new program to help responders with comprehensive health and wellness. Firefighters and other emergency responders will have access to in-house medical resources like cardiac stress tests and trauma counseling. Ioana Armstrong is with the department. For the longest time, especially in this career, mental health was not really talked about, but we know it's there, it's present, and I think One of the first steps is to, number one, acknowledge it and then do something about it. Now, this initiative is funded by the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, through the Assistance to Firefighters Grant Program. And the department says the program is set to launch before the new year. Finally, still looking for win number one, the Atlanta Falcons will try again as the team is out in Seattle to play the Seahawks. Don't y'all start emailing me. Now, the Falcons Falcons started last season with two losses. When asked about comparisons from last season to this season starting 0-2, well, let's see what defensive lineman Grady Jarrett had to say. Being 0-2 is not where any of us wanted to be, so I don't want to take glory in being 0-2 because I feel like we was in a position to win, you know, our first two games, so we just got to use that to overcome this hump. You know, I think the only thing we can focus on is right now and where we're at and um, because this is a whole different team than, than we've had in the past, and I'm excited for what's ahead of us, and um, that's really what the focus is, is just getting that one win, getting over the hump, get this train rolling. That's right, get the train rolling. I love Grady. He's always ready. Good luck, Falcons. You're listening to Closer Look. We're back in a moment.
Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. I recently read a piece from Sharanda Smith titled, We Remember, Chronicling 10 Race Massacres in America. And in the opening, she writes, quote, 101 years after the devastating Tulsa race massacre, the nation still struggles to acknowledge its past and the violence black Americans face at the hands of white citizens, close quote. So when we talk about the Tulsa race massacre of 1921, well, we know that this was pretty much 18 hours of violence as a white mob attacked residents, homes, businesses located in this area called the Black Greenwood neighborhood of Tulsa, Oklahoma. Now, for a documentary, Eldoris McCondry, who was nine years old in 1921, she recalled being awakened by her mother and what she vividly saw. She says, we have to go out, get out. I said, she says, the, the white people are killing the colored people. The airplanes was up, just raining down the bullets, and I could see them, and I heard them, and I was so frightened. Eldoris McCondry died in 2010 at the age of 99. Now, the Tulsa Race Massacre is just one of many similar violent acts specifically targeting black people in this nation, and that includes right here in Atlanta in 1906. Days of violence, and as we said earlier, fueled by biased reporting from city newspapers, intentionally stoking fears about black men. And an exact count of those killed has really, really never been documented. Now, the city of Atlanta officially recognized the massacre back in 2006. Joining me now to offer reflection on this and why we're still having conversations about why we should have the conversation. Join me now from Georgia State University, Maurice Hobson. He's a historian. He's an associate professor of African-American studies and historian at Georgia State University. And also from the Morehouse College. I'm supposed to say that, the Morehouse College. Ilya Davis. He's always been a professor of philosophy and the director of freshman and seniors academic success at the institution. Welcome back, you two. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Thank you very much. I want to start here because, Professor Hobson, you told me before we came on air, I said, you know, I want to be very clear. I think it's full. I think it's fair. I said, you know, I don't want to spend too much fussing and arguing about whether we call it a, a riot or a massacre. And you said, well, I have some thoughts on that. And then I said, okay, save it for me. And then you came in and you said, you know what, I think I have some clarity here. So I want you to start with that. What, what were you toying with at first? So oftentimes when we talk about unrest in the community, it has always been focused as a riot. And and I'm talking about in contemporary society, uh, you know, something were to pop off in in uh, St. Louis with, with uh, Michael Brown or, you know, what's happened in Baltimore or here in Atlanta, Minneapolis, we see that as a riot. And that's truly a rebellion. And the reason it's a rebellion is because it really is a pushback against uh, more of a plantation kind of society. When you're talking about a certain specific community, in this term, folks of color. Exactly. It's folks of color. And race is at the center of it. Okay. And then when we talk about um, riots, riots are perceived to be uh, this outburst of energy in a normally peaceful society. But in thinking about this, this is truly a race massacre. And it's a three-day race massacre. And as you've stated, it has never been fully documented. And so... It is proper to call this the Atlanta Race Massacre. Professor Davis, why are folks still toying with whether or not we call it a massacre or a riot? Folks, a particular group of people were targeted by another group of people, and race was at the center of it. Well, obviously, I would be speculating, but I think the speculation has a high level of of likelihood to be true. And that is, it's difficult to be self-critical. And if you expand that to be culturally critical and then even more so to be nationally critical, it's to offer a particular type of language to account for your actions or people's actions who are similar to you. Mm -hmm. So I believe it's a form of revisionist history and I'll leave that particularity to Dr. (laughs) Uh, Dr. Maurice, but there seems to be some issues with how people interpret history. 
And oftentimes they're assuming that because something has transpired, there's a fact of the matter and don't account for the interpretive moment that's required. And that is the interrogation of information and events and then try to use language to account for it. So it saves someone from some level of indirect responsibility, if not direct responsibility, when you can inoculate your responsibilities and literally say, well, it wasn't a massacre, it was a riot, which also imposes freedom on both sides with equal detriment to one Mm -hmm. another. Professor Hobson, when we talk about, and we've had this conversation with both of you and then also with Professor Nsinga Burton, because I call y'all the big three, we talked about this with Nicole uh, Hannah-Jones in terms of folks having issues about how history is told and what language, as Professor Davis just talked about, what language is used when we talk about this was rooted in white supremacy, America has a history of being racist, all of that. This is exactly what folks, some folks have issued with. How do we tell this story? You're a historian. You're in front of your class, your students. They ask you, tell me about the 1906 Atlanta race massacre. What do you tell them? The first thing I tell them is uh, one of the things that our students have access to uh, at Georgia State University, and I'm pretty sure at other universities, is you have access to uh, newspapers, mm-hmm. periodicals. And you can go, you know, one of the issues about history and how it's taught K through 12 and even in college, by and large, is that history is believed to be this kind of series of facts. And if you can memorize the facts, you'll do well in school. But the truth of the matter is it's investigative. And so one of the things that I've been able to do is to encourage the students to go into uh, the black newspapers that discuss the Atlanta race massacre. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution, or at the time, the Atlanta Constitution, did not discuss it. Mm-hmm. Okay, So that's one thing. But another aspect of it is I can also take students to the places where folk were massacred and we can breathe that air and we can see that and we can we can revision it in terms of how it works mm-hmm. and then I allow the students to use their own voices to really articulate what it is and it's very raw it's very real when they are able to see it in that capacity are you or and professor davis you can answer this too when your students say well I didn't I, didn't, I never knew this I, even folks that have lived here in Atlanta for a long time have said I never knew this I never knew this even existed is that also an indictment of some of the education systems here? Not, I won't say intentionally, but maybe just not educating students. This is a historic moment in the city, of all cities. You know, Atlanta has a lot of historic moments. This is a major historic moment because what it does is it really hardens the idea of Jim Crow segregation in Atlanta, Georgia. And it would be Atlanta that would emerge as kind of the poster child for race relations in the 1960s. And so, you know, one of the things that the race massacre does is it does truly codify segregation in a particular kind of way. And that prom- promotes or presents the strength of the Sweet Auburn District, which was deemed as the richest black district in the world. And so what happens from that is when lines are hardened due to the race massacre and there's a black community and there's a white community, the black community then is able to kind of thrive on its own terms, but it took so much pain and violence for a black community to really create an autonomous space. And, and, and it was that autonomous space is not always ideal, mm-hmm. but it is a space that black people embody. But but and Professor Davis, here's if folks don't know, it's not just Atlanta. There is a term it's called red summer. There are t- maybe even more than some we don't even know about there. It's well documented. At least a dozen of these type of violent acts, massacres that took place in this nation. Professor Davis? Yeah, yes. I mean, I mean, the history is there. I mean, the events to be interpreted are there, I'll say. Part of what is required is a thoroughgoing anthropology. I mean, what are we as human beings such that these types of things transpire? And it's intermittent through history, as you just alluded to. This not this is not unique to Atlanta. So for me, philosophically, it's interesting. What type of being are we such that we would engage in such horrific acts toward human beings, inhumanity toward other human beings? And we fail to address this directly. And we fail a fundamental tenet of democracy, and that is a fundamental level of honesty about your acts, your actions, and how you treat the least of these within your respective quarters. Now, you mentioned that D word, democracy, because this is where I want to go next, because uh, recently I was in conversation with another professor from Emory University, Professor Carol Anderson, with a new documentary that she has out called I Am, which looks at connecting January 6th at the Capitol. We all know what that's about. 
and these his, historic violent race massacres in this nation. Wilmington, a lot of people said they didn't, they didn't know about Wilmington. That's Hamburg, South Carolina. There's so many. So, Professor Davis, let me start with you. You understand when, we, when, when Professor Anderson is trying to make this connection between democracy, January 6th, and going back to these historic violent acts in our nation. We have a very underdeveloped, and I'm speaking more of the pedestrian view, the sort of everyday view of democracy seems to be reduced to voting. And it fails that in that regard. D democracy requires a certain critical gaze or analysis of oneself, one's community, and the nation. And we fear to be honest. There's some, something strange about it. I mean, Plato, if you will, he talks about the unruly passion and, and perversive ignorance of the majority. And it doesn't seem too far afield. So when you talk about you know, our contemporary problems, people are being led or desirous of guidance without this self critical analysis of who they are and the types of government that they would prefer. So we lack imagination. We lack experimentation with regard to creating a better democracy. We assume that it is stagnant, it is concrete, and it does not require reevaluation, recalibration over time. So it does appear to have failed. So the distrust of the ordinary seems to be embedded in ways that people aren't honest about. And that is democracy must always be in movement and in motion. And so the connection is what is the thinking of the individuals in 1906 and 2021? It seems quite, quite similar. And that is the failure to be critical of oneself enough to reevaluate what is the value here on the table. Professor Hobson, you've, you were shaking your head throughout that whole answer from Professor Davis. Well, you know, uh, and, and Professor Davis is correct. I mean, we must always reevaluate where we are and what we're doing. Um, I was uh, blessed to be sitting in a room with Al Vivian uh, not too long ago, and one of the things he said that his father, C.T. Vivian, stated was that once f people actually fully try to assert their voice across, mm -hmm. across everything, that's the end of American democracy. And I was like, that is so profound because... What we're talking about in this is really attempting to see the full-scale humanity of all of the citizens in this country and really acknowledging their own experiences and how they, you know, arrived to this country or what has happened in this country and then attempting to reconcile it. Um, you know, recently uh, President Joe Biden was talking about, uh, shortly after the 4th of July, he was talking about how, you know, several days ago this nation had celebrated 246 years of existence. And he says it's not a perfect history and we must, we must work to move forward. The problem, and this is what we understand with even like understanding 1906 and even January 6, is that we've the American population assumes that that past history is a good history. And we're human beings. Mm -hmm. We don't always do the right things. Professor Davis, in talking about acknowledgement, and I've had this conversation with folks on this program who say, okay, well, is it acknowledgement? Is it a reconciliation? Is it, and, we, and folks talked about this right, of course, when 2020 and George Floyd and all that. And some folks emailed me and said, what is the, the purpose? What, what is the value in acknowledgement and, and to get to reconciliation or healing? I'll ask you that question. Well, yeah, that 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 takes me a little beyond my area in the more sort of theological grounds. But because part of it is, is what does it mean to show contrition? And how is it that you can demonstrate, even if you're not directly responsible, you understand that some of your benefits have been the reward of the oppression of others. So it is our responsibility. So I always tell students when a gay brother and sister or women are fighting for their rights, sometimes I will say sorry, even if I am not in direct correlation to the oppression, I know that I have benefited from the marginalization of these groups. So all of us must reflect on ourselves and look at ourselves and be honest enough to say, Yes, a sorry is needed, an apology is needed, because I understand from my vantage point, as a black man and, and as a white person, there is a level of responsibility to make people understand this should not have happened. That's what it means to acknowledge this. This shouldn't have happened. I'm sorry it happened. And I would never wish this to happen again to any human being. It's just an acknowledgement of our humanity. Professor Hobson, from acknowledgement to reconciliation to healing, 
Your thoughts? I agree with Professor Davis on this. I mean, you know, the acknowledgement is important. And, and to even just recognize that if, if I had to check off of boxes of the privileges that I have, I mean, I think I have nine privileges of the 11 that are considered to be the top privileges. And, and with that being said, you know, part of what comes from this is that there are some who, from a theological perspective, want to reconcile. They, they want reconciliation. And that's cool, too. I guess what I'm saying is that to each its own, but acknowledgement is one thing. Reconciliation, you know, w- willing to be able to heal and move past mm-hmm. and move forward with a better understanding of history is just as much important. We, there's some in particular communities that are not willing to have reconciliation on both on, on all sides of this mm-hmm. this conversation. But the truth of the matter is if we plan on being here, we have to figure out a way to move forward. And so I think that acknowledgement is important. But for those who are interested in reconciliation, I think that that's a useful tool, too. But let's at least acknowledge. If we reconcile, we have to acknowledge what happened. Who needs to acknowledge? Um, in, this ca- in this case, for 1906. So the power, the power of this, mm-hmm. uh, the power is always equated to cisgendered white men. This is the issue that is really at hand here. And, and what most don't know about the Atlanta race massacre is this: the real problem within Atlanta at the time, it really wasn't the issue around black men and white women. It was economic competition, but it was an economic competition between the old South planter class that had come out of the Civil War, the wealth, and the new South business climate, who were this kind of nouveau riche. So there's this old guard money, and then there's this nouveau riche white communities that are clashing, and then the the group that gets thrown under the bus are the black community. Well, but we should note, too, that newspapers, city newspapers back then, were intentionally just publishing some just ridiculous, sensationalized lies, stoking these fears. Is there, what role then should, because people say, well, everyone from 1906 is dead now. Yeah. So someone says, well, what, what role, what, what's the responsibility here now? If I could just give you a really quick idea of uh, context. In, ni- in 1875, there was a plan called the Mississippi Plan. So after the Civil War, you had the passage of the 14th Amendment, Equal Protection Due mm-hmm. Process under the law, the 15th Amendment, which is universal suffrage, which is voting. And that politically changes things. And these are created for black folk. But what happens is after the Mississippi Plan in 1875, we see the strangling of black enfranchisement. Mm-hmm. And in the 1890s, we see this onslaught of state, uh, of state constitutions that are changing to do away with the black vote. Now, 1905, on the eve of the Atlanta race massacre, is when Alonzo Herndon creates the Atlanta Life Insurance Company. Mm-hmm. That is a major economic draw for black folk, mm-hmm. particularly in the Sweet Auburn district. And so what then begins to be the problem is that there's economic competition, and this man Alonzo Herndon has been able to kind of set his stake in the ground and really do some great things. And what's, But gubernatorially, there was a very highly contested uh, gubernatorial election that was full of demagoguery. Mm-hmm. So what we're talking about here is really a conversation of using fear tactics mm-hmm. to keep white people in power, but not just white people. There was a struggle between the old South and the new South, particularly within white communities. And the, the, and the ways in which the poor whites were brought into it is they were like, we are of the same stock, and the one enemy that we can all look to would be the black communities of Atlanta. Professor Davis, when we tell these histories, and it's interesting because there was a quote, the New York Times, this is back in 1906, reported that when then-mayor, now the mayor was James G. Woodard, this was his response when they asked him about the measures taken to prevent what they called a race riot. He replied, quote, The best way to prevent a race riot depends entirely upon the cause. If your inquiry has anything to do with the present situation in Atlanta, then I would say the only remedy is to remove the cause. As long as the black brutes assault our white women, just so long will they be unceremoniously dealt with, close quote. And then that sets the stage for 1915 with David Wart Griffin's uh, Birth of a Nation yeah. that is used as a recruiting tool yeah. for the Klan. Yeah. And that sets us up for the summer of 1919, which is Red Summer. And full disclosure, growing up, I thought Red Summer had to do with, with communism. I right. thought it was about, you know, mm-hmm. communism. But what it really is about is blood flowing in the streets. So, again, and Professor Davis, I want you to weigh in on this, too. Again, even that, this is a published report. 
that and you talked about your students being able to find all this. This this exactly sort of validates what you both have been saying, Professor Davis. This is the mayor of Atlanta. And I know it's 1906. And don't y'all email me talking about that was the Times Rose because I just got one of those emails that said that. I'm sorry. No, Professor I, Davis. No, I mean, this is, and again, uh, not to wax too philosophical, but. Oh, go ahead. That's of, what you do. No, there, yeah, right. There, there's something of an existential anxiety that's hanging over the heads of people in leadership when they try to account for the privileged in the society. I mean, we do it for the rich, you do it for the class, your subclasses, you know, your affiliations is what we normally protect. And so what happens is he's trying to assuage those who, again, um, are non-Black and try to make them feel a little confident in his ability to marginalize and to maintain the social structures that we find here in Georgia. And to, um, to Brother Maurice's point is exactly financial is at the base of this. You have black people making some forms of mobility, social mobility. You have Brownsville where, you know, Carver, Carver Homes and Carver High School or Clark College was originally Clark University was mm -hmm. over in that area. So it was a booming area. Now the question is, what is it about their social mobility that creates anxiety on the part of poor whites, working class whites? Well, it's an idea of being left out of the mixture. Right. This idea of democracy, what happens to the dreams and aspirations of my own? Why am I being left out now? That doesn't there, there's no necessary causal uh, relation, but there is something that causes anxiety on the parts of others when they do see this happening in this country. So in Georgia, a lot of whites were upset. You have persnickety Negroes, if you will, moving socially and economically mm -hmm. in ways that their response is, well, if I can't have it, I am going to make sure no one else does, especially not this newly freed black. Mm. I have a question from a listener, and, and I, I think, Professor Hobson, I'm hoping you can answer. She says, Rose, is the Atlanta race massacre congruent to the destruction of the Sweet Auburn Avenue? Well, yeah, and indirectly, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, if I, I want us to think about it, and, and, and Brother Ilya did make reference to this. You know, from 1865 to 1886, there were six historically black colleges founded in Atlanta, Georgia. I mean, mm -hmm. that makes Atlanta a juggernaut when, it talk, when we talk about black education. And then we have the, the creation of the Sweet Auburn District, and then we have the race massacre. But the thing about it is after the race massacre, we see these hardened lines of segregation, and you see affluence that really abounds in the Sweet Auburn District until about the 1960s. Mm -hmm. And because of that affluence, what, what really leads to the dismantling of the Sweet Auburn District and the, the gentrification of it is the Model Cities initiatives that builds the interstate. The, the, the Eisenhower Interstate, and they move it directly through mm -hmm. the Sweet Auburn District to displace black businesses and black people. And that was happening throughout the nation, too, it, with it, the throughout development the nation. of interstates. Exactly. And so what happens with this is, I think in 1967, when, the, when 7585 was put through the Sweet Auburn District, that displaced 10,000 black folk, and there were businesses associated with those black folk. And so that was done. It was systematically done to do away with that black, that black, black enclave of affluence and wealth. Hmm. And then it trickles down and then we begin to see urban blight. We begin to see all of these different things that take place. And, you know, we can have conversations around urban blight in the 1960s with Newark and Detroit and Chicago. And, and Atlanta fits into that conversation and as well. And then we could have a whole nother conversation about where we are right now with our housing crisis, which we continue to have every day on here and that's a whole nother conversation uh, gentlemen as we begin to wrap up and professor davis i'll start with you when we talk about reflect on the 1906 atlanta massacre and all these other massacres and again how it ties into our nation's current state of democracy what do you through your lens what are you hoping people can take away and make that connection um, I'll steal a line from one of the greatest books and movies, The Color Purple. I'm still here. We're still here. The resilience of black folk. I would not want anyone to leave here and not understand the active role of resilience played by black people, that we're not just to be acted upon, that we are agents in history. So it's not reducible to what they did to us is what we did for ourselves after this massacre. And I think that is very important. That's why we're here where we are now, not the best place in the world, but it is a place nonetheless that we have created and crafted for ourselves. So, and that's fundamentally responsible. That's a responsibility of the oppressed. Sadly, we have, we have borne this burden overwhelmingly, but it is something to be celebrated. So when people leave here, yes, 1906 and, and many other moments have transpired to 
overwhelm our, our freedoms and, our, and, and a notion of democracy that is useful. But at the end of the day, we have to say, I'm still here. Professor Hobson. And we have to hold all accountable to what is what is known as the Constitution of the United States. And we have to, the Constitution was set in stone, it was created, it's been amended. But it also has to move. It's the same conversation that Brother Ilya was saying about how we have to revisit that conversation and the Constitution. And we have to make it be more inclusive. Um, there are some conservatives who will take the most narrow view and there are some liberals who will take the, the widest view. But the thing about that is at the end of the day, the Constitution is supposed to guarantee life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I see that as the 13th Amendment without committing crimes, freedom, mm-hmm. liberty. The 14th Amendment, which is equal protection due process under the law, i.e. Uh, life. And the, the 15th Amendment, which is voting, which is the pursuit of happiness. If you have an opportunity to change the circumstances to make life better and more inclusive, please try to do so. And I would love for those who are trying to suppress to really fully understand that and can we have time because it's it's my show right Shelly we have time (laughs) can we also just talk about the value in using this as education for our generation a generation of youth regardless of ethnicity but if we're going to talk about black and brown folks but particularly black youth using this also for to inspire them to do better make better decisions in life January 6th, January 6th was really a watershed moment for us to really have to recalibrate. Even the, the, the hardest right-winger had to stop and say, wait, this has gone a little too far. And I, I will tell you what I saw as, as a major telltale sign of what things were, is when you looked out from the TV screen, when you looked out on uh, the, the steps of the Capitol, are those flags of resistance, that Confederate flag. They say they're Americans, but you're flying a treasonous Confederate flag. That demonstrated right there that an idea about what this country is versus the the, the, the stars and bars with the 50, mm-hmm. uh, well, the, the, the old glory with gotcha. the 50 mm-hmm. you know, states on it. It represents a particular idea of recalcitrant white resistance. That's when things became very clear is we have to have a real come to Jesus moment to figure out what this nation is and how we will move forward. Professor Davis, I'll give you the last word on that and how we use this moment, these moments for the next generation. Uh, If we would but humble ourselves. I mean, part of what we saw was high levels of narcissism. The idea that I didn't get what I wanted and this is my response as a two year old might. And I thought that was one of the most non-democratic, undemocratic things that could be done. It's okay to disagree. We, we love disagreement provides for reflection and recalibration. But the idea that these individuals seem to have understood that the repercussions would be minimal. And it seems like that is coming to fruition that black people knew under no circumstances could we have behaved similar to that and not have the weight of an entire government come down on us. So in the words of Du Bois, after he had witnessed this 1906, he says to himself, where are you, God? I mean, show yourself, deliver yourself, because it's confusing how one group could be treated so badly and another take great pride in their rebelliousness. And I'll use the word again, as he did, the recalcitrance that they had toward everything they say they believe in, democracy and freedom and fairness and justice and equity, it went out the window by the wayside at best. And so I think that the lesson to be learned here is we must humble ourselves, everyone equally, all the time, in order to maintain the best social relations we can. From Morehouse College, Ilya Davis, longtime professor of philosophy and director of freshman and seniors academic success from Georgia State University. Maurice Hobson, an associate professor of African-American studies and a historian. Thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. Thank you both. Good conversation.
And Closer Look continues from WABE here in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Recently, the WNBA crowned its latest champion, the Las Vegas Aces, a team that was originally founded in Salt Lake City. They were, remember way back then, they were the Utah Stars. And they're owned by Mark Davis, the current owner, also of the Las Vegas Raiders. Now, the WNBA has come a long way as a league. I know because I covered it decades ago, which also tells you that I'm old. But also Atlanta's WNBA team, the Atlanta Dream, well, they're in the midst of rebuilding off and on the court. There's new ownership, new players, of course, and a new coach this past season. So let's talk all about it with Tanisha Wright. Just completed year one as a head coach of the Atlanta Dream. Welcome. Thank you very much. Excited okay. to be here. Describe year one in one word as a coach. Exciting. Yeah? Year one was exciting. When you think about, okay, I was when I was a player and the head coach was saying <laughs> this, and I probably was being hard-headed, not listening to the coach at all, that come into your mind? Oh, of this, course. When you Now that you're a head coach yeah. and you're like, ah, I get it now. Yeah, of course. I mean, um, you know, when, especially when you're a young player, you think you know everything. Of course you, you do. Know, until you get schooled a few times <laughs> and, you know, you bump your head. But I'm not hard-headed. So that was the thing. Like, once you learn, it's like, all right, this helps me. So, What did you see in your players that – reminded you of you when you used to play and and some of the either the the, the challenges or even mm-hmm. the the achievements that you were able to to harness in on them yeah so I think one thing that I um, saw that was very specific is their competitiveness um, I had a team full of women who were um, competitive and every single day that we stepped out on the court they brought that to the to the floor and so that excited me especially as a coach because you know I, I coached the game how I how I played the game, you know what I mean? And that's how I see the game is how I played it as well. But could that also be challenging because for some players, and and the great Teresa Edwards told me this, she said, she told me, she said, Rose, sometimes I have to understand that maybe every player doesn't play the way that I played the game Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or the the, the passion. And Michael Jordan said that too. Not not everybody is me and I don't expect them to be me. But um, as far as the the dream is concerned, you know, the players that we're trying to bring um, into the fold here are going to have that um, that factor about them. Because you have to put you want to put that stamp on the team collectively. One hundred percent. We're we're going to be a competitive team when we step out on the floor. You got to have some type of competitive drive, um, some type of toughness to you. Um, and so we're we're looking for those type of players to bring into our organization. As mentioned, this is rebuilding for not yeah. just the team on the court, but the entire the, the entire organization. New ownership. Was that important to you in in wanting to come to Atlanta and in agreeing to be the head coach? One hundred percent. I think, um, you know, anytime you can get into something from the ground floor up and help build it up, starting with the foundation, because the foundation is so important. Right. Um, You can't build anything on shaky ground um, because what's the point? You know what I mean? It'll just crumble back down. So to be a part of something where you can build it from the foundation up is really important, was really important to me. Your your team, man, the first the first eight days of the first eight games, and y'all were balling out, and you know we were all writing it. Look at the dream, and then you hit yeah. a bit of a slide. You had some injuries too. Yeah. How did you pace yourself as a first year head coach? You know, yeah. you coached before, but as a first year head coach, how did you pace yourself through all this the ups, and then you hit some downs for a while yeah. there? You know, um, one is understanding the goal. Right. Um, our, our goal was never to, you know, we never went in saying we're going to be WNBA champions. That wasn't our goal. Our mm-hmm. goal was to change the trajectory of the pro, of the franchise um, to make it a place where people wanted to come to make it a professional, um, a professional setting and a professional environment. Um, and, and then I, I hired really good people around me. <laughs> uh, our, our assistants were great in understanding that, and our staff was really good in understanding what, what our purpose was and what our, what our goals were for this first year. You had an outstanding rookie in yeah. Ryan Howard. And Stud. also, congratulations, you were the AP Coach of the Year. Thank you, thank you. First year. Yeah. Did, it, did anyone call you and say, hey, you know, I, I, that's your first year, not bad? <laughs> let me give you some advice. Did Bill Lambert call you and say, let me give you some advice? You know, I, I didn't hear from Bill afterwards, but but I picked up so much from Bill. Mm-hmm. Um, having one played for him mm-hmm. and two coached, coached under him for two years, um, I, I picked up so many little trades and tricks and different things like that and how to be a professional coach and how to treat the players. Um, so there, there's a ton of what, um, I put into, to the dream and, and in my first year, um, that I, that I took from him for sure. 
So what did you take from that first year in terms of what you want to improve upon personally Mm -hmm. as a coach? Uh, Just continuing to hone my skills. I think as a coach, you're forever learning, you're forever growing, and you can't get comfortable. Um, One of my assistants, one of the feedback that they gave me was be brave. Um, Don't be afraid to make make bold decisions and live with that. So I think as I continue to grow, like – doing that and learning that continuing to to get better in the craft and not being afraid to make bold decisions now are you willing to admit on this show because i know all the team is listening <laughs> uh you want to apologize somebody for making them run some sprints that they probably didn't deserve <laughs> coach no <laughs> nah, no no apologies i think we we pushed them just just what they needed you know what i mean what they needed um shout out to uh cheyenne parker cp um, we like to call her. I um I, I rode her heavy this year, but mm-hmm. she was such a joy. Why? Because she her potential is is more than what she she's showing. Mm-hmm. Like she's so gifted and has the ability to be um really good in this league. Um and so just trying to just stay on her so that I can get the best out of her every single day. Do you have to sort of self-edit yourself when you're doing that to a, a player like her and then say, let me back off a little bit, or you you stay on her? No, um, that's what you have assistance for, mm-hmm. um, right? Like, they, they come behind me. And I'm the type of coach, to be honest with you, though, like, I'll kick you in the butt, but I'm also the first one to big you up. You know what I mean? Like I just said, CP has so much to give um, to our organization, to our team. And so I stayed on her because I I expect that from her. And I think she expects that from herself. I want to shift for a moment because, as I mentioned, I remember when when the WNBA started. And I remember reading and and hearing from all these, as I call them, folks who think they know everything in sports talk. And by the way, my career started in sports talk, (laughs) but I was not one of them. Oh, the WNBA will never last. And no one's going to watch women's basketball. You and I both know we've had that conversation Mm -hmm. so many times times in the past and as a matter of fact this morning I won't mention his name someone told me well I think the skill set's not the same I was like what bruh nah do you tripping. know what the great John Wooden said <laughs> trip it <laughs> John Wooden said the the best skill set is found in the women's game so we're still having those conversations but the league has come a long way yeah the league is the league is growing I mean there there's no if ands or buts about it I think game one of the WNBA finals was the most viewed game one in in history mm-hmm. I believe if my numbers you can fact check that <laughs> but if not like it, it was high up there. no they had some 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 right. historic viewership Ex- I, I, exactly. I get the emails so yeah exactly so uh, something else that and I think we should address this because you know as a player in the league, and sometimes other you know players have to go overseas to play, yeah, just to supplement. Yeah. I mean, we we all know the salaries between the NBA mm-hmm. and the WNBA. Yeah. you know, it's like an acorn and a mountain. Mm-hmm. Let's be really clear mm-hmm. about that. And then the situation with Brittany Griner yeah. and why she was even playing overseas to begin with. First of all, just your your own reflection about Brittany Griner and and hopes that she will be brought back. Home. You know, I, I think we're all hurting. Like, as a community, we are the one thing, the one great thing about the WNBA is we're a community. Um, and we support one another. We support each other. We lift each other up. You know what I mean? Um, and we're all hurting. That's the coaches. That's the players. We want we want to bring BG home. And we want her home with us. You know what I mean? Whatever that looks like, it's what it looks like. You know what I mean? We don't want her to home just because we want her back on the WNBA court. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That's not the reason. We want her home because she's our sister. Um, she's somebody's daughter. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Somebody's um, wife. Somebody's yeah. wife. Exactly right. And, you know, she, she needs to be home. And we know um, if this was any other NBA player, the it, it would she'd be home by now. You think so? Oh, uh, 100%. You you played overseas? I have, of course. Because you, you needed to for financial reasons? You know, um, the women, like, they, the narrative is that we need to for, for financial reasons. But we love we love this game. Mm-hmm. We love this game. Yes. Like and you don't play an 82-game no, season like the, the, like the, the, NBA, yeah, the NBA. We don't. But we, we play 30-something games. Um, and then overseas, we go and play another 30-something games as well. Mm-hmm. Um we're professional athletes at the end of the day, so you want to be co- compensated as such. So we go over there one because we love the game, and two that it, it helps us. And you play, and, and you, but you play. Let's be really clear. The, I've seen the yeah. salaries over there. Yeah. They're not bad. Coach. No, not that's what I'm saying. Yeah. One, we love the game, and two, it provides us financial stability to be able to live like we feel like we should be able to mm-hmm. live as being professional athletes. Do you remember your 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 first year salary as a player? Yeah, man, I wasn't making anything like. <laughs> 
You want to share? 40,000 maybe, something like that. Maybe like 40,000. <laughs> it was crazy. But that, that just shows you how far the W has, has come yeah. and um, how how far we, we will get there. You know what I mean? I, I said this earlier this year with somebody. is like, we're going to get there. We're not the NBA. The NBA wasn't making this type of money in their 26th year either. Mm-hmm. We'll get there. It's going to take some time. It's going to take some fortitude. It's going to take a lot of um, help and growing and a lot of different things. But we'll get there. I have a listener that has a question. Wants to know what type of offense do you want to run, Coach? Dang, did, listener, did you watch? Did you did you watch our games this year? What are they asking? I mean, I mean you know. Now look, I had this conversation too because yeah. everybody wants to come down and shoot a three. <laughs> you um, know, we we run um, and we did it this past year. We run a very um, open um, dribble drive type offense where we're attacking, um, trying to draw the defense, um, kick different things like that. We want to create open shots for people. We want to create for one another, be playmakers. Um, and put people in the best position to be successful um, according to their skill set. You have all the players you feel to run that type of offense? You know, we, we plugged in. I, th- I think any year you want to continue to get better. We have areas that we need to grow in and areas that we need to get better in, that's for sure. Um, but the one thing this this team did was set a foundation for us, and I'm really proud of the players that we brought in this past year to help us create that foundation for what's going to propel us um, forward. Every season, it's a different team. Like, that's yeah. just the reality. No team is ever the same. Um, so will we look a little different? Yeah, probably. Uh, are you looking at any players coming out of Don Staley's South Carolina game? <laughs> you tra- now you're trying to get me fine. Here we go. Because <laughs> you can't talk about that. But let's talk then about the offseason. What What are you doing? What are you and the coaching staff, what are you all doing in this offseason? We're taking a break right now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like we hit the ground running when we came. Um, so right now we're just we're taking a break. But soon, like, we'll be going to NBA training camps, um, you know, listening in to those type of things and learning as much as we can learn then after that we'll get to some scouting and then it's it's on the move again you know what I mean it's on the move so we'll be traveling to some colleges obviously watching some of these um incoming players who who are entering into the draft for next year and you know hopefully we can we can find us an, another another stud another another Ryan yeah, Howard another stud there's, there's only one Ryan Howard but we can find another she has an incredible game you know, she has an incredible, an incredible game when you are talking to youth, to younger players, and they say, well, coach, how do I get to the WNBA? And yeah. What do you tell them? Work ethic. Mm-hmm. Like, you got you to put it in. You can't cheat the game. You know what I mean? The game the game will reward you for your for what you put in. Like, if you really want to do that, you got to be focused on it, and you got to put the work in. Who told you that when you were a younger player? Nobody. Really? You know what I mean? It was like I loved the game and I really enjoyed it. Like my friends could tell you, like I literally like before school, I'm out on the basketball court. When did you first pick up a basketball? I don't know, to be honest with you. Like I'm from New York originally and I'm used to playing on the crates. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like the, the crates on the uh, phone poles and different things like that. You know what I'm saying? But um, I'm, I was raised in, in Pittsburgh and uh, in Whitaker and we had a basketball court in our, in our projects. And every single day there wasn't a day um that I lived there that I wasn't out on that court is it true the best point guards come out of New York uh a lot of really good point guards come out of New York that's for sure that's for sure and I I was lucky enough to play with one of the um the greatest did you ever play at Rucker Park I never played at Rucker I never played at Rucker I was I'm from New York but I was raised in Pittsburgh okay you know so I spent a lot of my my basketball years um in in Pittsburgh did you try to emulate somebody else's game who were those people I'm a huge John Starks fan Really? Lil John Starks? Lil John Starks, exactly. <laughs> I'm a huge John Starks fan, so, you know, that was my guy growing up. So anything John Starks did, like, I was I was trying to do. But um, he's got a dunk that's Yeah, man, everybody play. know. You know the that dunk? dunk her around oh, the world man, over Jordan. Like, little bitty old John Starks. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. So John Starks is my man. In terms of women's, I think um, growing up seeing, like, Whole Squad play was yeah, something Shemika. different. Yeah. yeah, she's been on this program before. Yeah, Whole Squad yeah. was was something nice she doesn't get as she doesn't get her due in today's time like she like she should she's whole squad was nice yeah she played tennessee too yeah she was Pat nice Summit. i was covering the uh one of the one of the women's final four i think it was in annapolis and the lady vials were there and i think michigan state and maybe baylor and somebody else and i tell you folks following pat summit like they are following prince 
or Michael Jackson's, <laughs> like just the sea of, of folks. You talk about women who have been instrumental to growing this game. Mm-hmm. I mean, Pat Summit yeah. has to come to Vivian Stringer. Listen, true story. When I was a... Uh... I was in, um, when I was younger, playing like AU growing up, um, I was at a tournament and I had some family at a tournament with me and Pat Summit was there. I was too nervous to go ask for like an autograph. <laughs> so my little, I had a little cousin that was there who couldn't have been no more than like two years old. Sent him over to ask her. You sent the little Sent cousin. the little guy over to ask her for an autograph. It's a true story, true story. <laughs> nah, Pat, Pat is a goat. She's such a pioneer um, for the women's game and just advancing women in general in sports. And so, you know what I mean? Much, much respect. Um, God bless. And we have some giants. Of course, you got yeah. Gino and Tara Vanderveer and of course, Don Staley yeah. who's taking that program it's just been if I had to say well coach next year maybe two years when hopefully you think the Atlanta dream will be in that conversation about this is a team to watch out for yeah we're 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 only gonna get better um that's the truth of the matter we're only gonna get better we set the foundation and now it's it's continuing to push and continue to get better I don't see that as pressure or anything like that it's just our mindset our our job and our goal is to improve every single season so we we took a leap this year we're hoping to take a leap next year and continue to do that for years for years to come you still got some skills on the court I still got some game action I bust them up every once in a while and shoot around <laughs> they think I'd be playing but then when I do something they be like go ahead sit down coach T <laughs> Denisha Wright, head coach of the Atlanta Dream. Thank you so much for coming in. Best of luck to you and the team. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are LaShawn Hudson, Daniel Razel, and Pat St. Clair. Our engineer for today was Shelly Canavy. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.